The good news is, I'm back. I still have no idea how it all happened. One minute I was walking through a man-made cavern in the center of a swap meet in the California desert. And the next thing I knew, I was scrambling over rocks in the middle of a dusty canyon, trying to get my bearings by watching the moon rise over some ancient twisted trees, desperately following the trail of an enchanted creature and trying to find my way home. People have all kinds of encounters in the high desert. Lost sailing ships, chupacabras, coyote men, talking crows, and aliens that take the guise of retirees enjoying mid-century modern architecture. You can tell the aliens from humans because they always mention the dry heat being better. The dry heat is better for their species, but not ours. We need a damp heat or our cell walls collapse. That's just science. But I digress. The fact is, it's time for you to take my astral hand and yours as we journey to a place where this story of my strange trip in the desert can be told. Let us go now to the deep night. turbines stood as silent sentinels on the far edge of town. There was snow on the mountaintops, and the cool air above meant that the hot air down in the valley drew great thickets of clouds over them, which sat like a mound of sour cream on top of a rocky burrito bowl. It was springtime in the desert, and Galinda and I had just driven into Palm Springs from the Salton Sea, on our way from seeing a few clients in Phoenix. I know what you're thinking. And of course we made our annual stop at Captain Don's real fresh and also good jerky store. We loaded up our hemp sacks with beef, elk, venison, frog, salmon, and tuna jerky. If you've ever celebrated the solstice with us, you know I like to keep our guests at their full receptive capacities by offering them lots of thick, thick herbal smoothies and powerful dried proteins. You can't feel the new moon energies on an empty stomach. I may not wear much at those gatherings, sometimes just a turtleneck dicky, but the one thing that's always around my middle, and sometimes a little off to the side, depending on my moon dancing, is my bedazzled denim fanny pack full of jerky. Reach in, have a jerk, keep dancing. Those are the rules of our party. Around the waxing and waning gibbuses, I like to give jerky as gifts to some of the people I've made powerful connections with in my neighborhood. Tofu jerky for Mel, our postal services provider, a recent Buddhist convert who considers forever stamps a kind of metaphor for personal worth in line with his dharmic practice, and he's begun to collect some of his thoughts on the matter in a new chapbook called The Forever Path, an eightfold guide to the ways that buying stamps once can ensure a lifetime of happiness. I promised I'd get around to reading it, but I've been saying that <laughs> for a while now. Western beef jerky for Mr. Sam, who runs the halal chicken cart by the train station and has had it up to here with chicken. He finally tells me any time I stop by, which is most Tuesdays after spin clash, that he has never been to Portland. But he went to San Diego once, and all the women were tan, and he had a steak at Sizzler, and he never forgot it. I hope that beef jerky brings him joy and helps spark some wonderful flavor memories. They say the tongue is where our past lives. We just don't always know how to access it. I say flood it with dried beef and see what happens. A lot of good memories of great meals out and good-looking people, I bet. Reluctantly, I also put a few packets of salmon jerky in the mail, thanks to Mel, who never hassles me about the right-size envelope. 
We are all the right size envelope, he likes to say. And uh, I send a few of them to some family members who, even though we're not on speaking terms, I still wish the best for them. And I hope a surprise protein pouch brightens whatever dark emotional valley they happen to be in at the time. Although a little therapy would also help. Sometimes at night I picture them pulling a hunk of jerky apart in their crooked teeth and sipping fresh clean water from the expensive reusable water bottles I bought for them last year for their birthdays in hopes that they'd get the message that recycling may not be perfect, but it's one thing we can do to try and stave off environmental collapse, which, yes, isn't your immediate concern right now, Dinald, on account of the downsizing in your office, but still, we should do what we can. Use the damn bottle, Dinald. I must admit something to you, listener. I enjoy stopping at Captain Don's Real Fresh and also good jerky store because right across the street is the phenomenal place seemingly deposited there from the ancient deities who planned our interstate system of highways and byways. There, gleaming in the warm sun, is a glorious one-story depot of raw rock vibrations known as Gem Galaxy. It ain't much to look at from the outside, just a low, flat building sheath in corrugated metal its siding painted beige to match the dust that stretches across the asphalt. Gem Galaxy spells out its name in fading reflective bronze letters in an 80s corporate park font centered above two massive roll-up doors. What it lacks in style, it makes up for in size. And quantity. It's a galaxy of gems in there, folks. Every size and kind in shapes and configurations you never thought possible. I found rocks that looked like they contained drawings, rocks that had lights in them, rocks that stood as tall as I am, even with my orthotic inserts in. Now, if you've ever purchased a crystal at some high-end healing outlet, you know the kind, and you thought, I don't know, 50 bucks for a shiny rock, that impulse you have that this is something that the earth provides for free, that you're now paying a sum equal to that of a decent meal, assuming that you're... Out eating alone, and I think that's a safe assumption, looking at the listener data for this show. That feeling that by spending that much money, you're being, qu'est-ce que say, ripped off. That's the right feeling. Trust your gut, friends. At Gem Galaxy, the same crystals are, forgive the expression, dirt cheap. Some are priced by the pound. Anything priced by the pound is okay in my book, unless it's the ground round. They used to have a pay-what-you-weigh night, and as a chubby kid, well, that was no bueno. All the other kids were like 90 cents. I got on the scale, and the other dad was like, wow, I hope you brought your own money. Yes, I think we can safely say that Gem Galaxy is where all the stones come from. Friends, I know, because at our wellness clinic, I sell crystals from Gem Galaxy (laughs) with a modest markup. That's the business. Don't hate the gem player. Hate the gem game. One can spend all day in there. Celestite clusters, quartz geodes, both halves held together with rubber bands, amethyst doorstoppers, citrine bookends, and row after row of more of the same gems, beads, bowls, and lamps, you name it, the galaxy's got it. Galinda asked a woman wearing dreamcatcher earrings, excuse me, what's down this way? And she said, rocks, it's all rocks. (laughs) And we laughed. They even have fossils, which should probably be illegal, but it's not, so who cares? But they had a series of trilobites there. You know those things, those ancient prehistoric creatures of the sea, one of the first things to really thrive on our planet. And probably they were huge, but then they got small, but still big enough that it would scare you if you saw it in your bathtub or something. Anyway, they had a whole bunch of them mounted on little plaster scenes. And at first I thought, oh, how playful. One was crawling up a rock. The other was sliding down a little hill. But then I realized that many of them were posed rather 
erotically. I never thought about the sex life of a trilobite before, but now I can't stop thinking about it. I thought that'd be a great thing to have a few of these at the tantric workshops we've started offering on Wednesday nights at the clinic. Erotic fossils. We need more of that, folks. We're sanitizing our history. Two things I know. Dinos had feathers on their arms, and they liked to fuck. Crude, but that's what the facts are. Again, science has a lot to teach us if we're willing to listen and pick out just the things that seem relevant to us. We purchased so much at Gem Galaxy, I was worried the rental car was going to pop a tire as we pulled away and onto the hot desert blacktop of Route 10. One thing we did for each other was to buy matching gemstone owls, two tiny little creatures, one for Galinda's room and one to keep on the windowsill near my sleeping hammock in the living room, which I put away and roll up when company comes over. The hills and mountains around us were covered in patches of yellow, purple, and green, scant remnants of whatever super-bloom had happened and was still in greater effect, I gather, in more southern destinations. Our old neighbor, Mrs. Leverley, who now lives in Escondido with her son and family, she had sent us an email with an attachment of her lying splayed out in a seemingly endless landscape of bright orange poppies and brilliant green bushes. She was naked as the day she was born, although I was pleased to spy her signature purple quilted tote to her side, which I assume was probably full of delicious jerky, and probably a flask full of good, expensive rum, knowing Mrs. Leverley. That woman was like a scorpion bowl with legs, sure to cause a hangover and best enjoyed with friends. Sadly, we never saw anything close to the colorful bush on display in Mrs. Leverley's snapshot as we made our way to the Salton Sea for lunch. Now, to keep things light, I kept calling out, Super Bloom, whenever I saw a flower, which always gave Galinda a chuckle. Well, for the first hour, anyway. Now, I must make another confession here, friends. In my mind, I had confused the Salton Sea with Owen's Lake. <laughs> Couldn't you just... I mean, I know. I know. What a bonehead. <laughs> anyway, Salton Sea is still watery and huge. Kind of salty, but nice to be near it and have a picnic. Unfortunately, I spread out the blanket near an abandoned park service building of some kind because it offered a little bit of shade, and wouldn't you know it, as soon as I uncorked my kombucha growler, it became clear that we had put our Navajo blanket down near a hive of sand bees. Now, they might just be regular bees, but since they were at the beach, I decided to call them sand bees. Again, with science, it's open. You want to really grok this world we live in? Call things as you see them. Ants are grass fleas. Peanuts are rattle beans. Just have fun with it. No one's going to correct you if they really love you. Well, no matter what I called them, these little buzzing critters were not happy to see us and were apparently driven wild by the smell of my honey-rose-water-pressed flower kombucha. Oh, no! Some animals, including my neighbor Kevin, really don't care for the stuff, and they're happy to let you know about it. Anyway, I had it in my mind that sand bees only drank ocean. But boy, was I wrong. We had to gather our things and run out of there, and in doing so, I ended up tossing my growler against the cement block of the empty building where it smashed and sent fizzing kombucha everywhere, which the sand bees heartily drank up, which made them even more angry and aggressive on account of the high alcohol content. I brew my own stuff, and when I do, I make sure it's got the special kick that only a drink that's 110 proof can have. We fled to the comfort of our rented Volkswagen Golf, swatting at the sand bees and trying to salvage a rather sandy couple of Southwest turkey sandwiches we'd purchased at the airport the day before. If you're curious, the thing that made them Southwest? Chipotle mayo. It's always Chipotle mayo. 
Our lunch rather ruined, Galinda and I sat quietly and chased our meal with a few pieces of jerky from a plastic bag. We went into the Salton Sea Ranger Station and watched a park-produced video starring a beleaguer-looking park ranger standing on the edge of the Salton Sea as seagulls circled just behind her. You could really feel this gal's passion for tilapia as she grew very animated talking about the fish that until like three years ago I had never heard about before. But then they had it at Trader Joe's and I was like, sure, tilapia. But then someone told me it was a dirty fish, so I stopped buying it. The current state of it is unknown. The video went on to explain about the dangerous levels of salt in the Salton Sea, and I started to think, huh, I was rather fortunate that it was called that and not, you know, Baloney Lake or something. We heard all about Sonny Bono's efforts to save the sea for recreation purposes and how the military used the large body of water as target practice for its bombing runs in the 1950s. The military sure got up to some funny stuff out in the desert back then. Speaking of which, I still can't get the full picture of what they did to my Uncle Dewey back in 52. Oh, well, it's kind of neat how his toes keep growing back. Still a little puckish and tired, we eased back on the highway, and an actual real-life roadrunner darted across the road in front of us. There's no story there. I just always wanted to see one, and now I have. Galinda adjusted the air conditioner vent away from her face, pointing it down so that a steady stream of cool air blew over my exposed forearms. You guessed it, I was wearing my summerweight turtle tank. Perfect for spring. That reminds me, I'd very much like to hear Ariana Grande uh, do a song called Turtle Necks, <laughs> and it's just heard me trying out turtle necks in the dressing room of an L.L. Bean. I was sharing this story to Galinda, but when I looked over, she was fast asleep. I was happy she could rest and didn't dare wake her on account of her screaming night panics. Luckily, she woke on her own as I pulled the golf into the last remaining parking spot at the small resort she'd picked out for us. The owners stepped out to greet us. They were healers themselves, and I gather they knew Galinda from a previous female energy workshop and a wide pants-making session in San Luis Obispo. They stood very close to each other as they spoke, and the workshop clearly was instructive, as they were matching pants with very wide legs that gave them the appearance of standing atop two toll booths. Gary, who was a lady, helped me with our overnight bags, and Beatrix, also a lady, sprayed a fine mist of mountain sage water at us so that we could enter the property fully cleansed of bad vibrations or any hitchhiking ne'er-do-wells, as she put it. It was slightly aggressive, but it smelled nice, and that combination reminded me of my mother. Galinda finished up the paperwork, and then Gary showed me the healing mineral pools in the center of the property, of which she was quite proud. She told me the natural springs that fed those pools came out of the ground at 160 degrees, which is right where I like to have my natural spring water. She handed me a homemade cinnamon cake, which I guess she was keeping in one of her large pant legs, and then led us to our rooms. Mine was a corner unit overlooking a dumpster, but Galinda's had sweeping vistas of the mountains and the well-kept landscape around the hotel. I threw the switch on my AC unit, which I thought would also help drown out the sounds of my snoring, should Galinda or any of the other guests complain. Plus, as soon as I walked in, I could hear the newlyweds next door, and let's just say that I was happy to have a little AC noise to drown out their happiness, which I knew might not last, because I am a realist who has seen things and lived things. Gal and I changed into our swimwear and met each other outside for a relaxing soak in those healing waters. Gary and Beatrix sat uh, by the pool in rustic wooden patio chairs and watched as we enjoyed the hot and slightly less hot pools. I read somewhere that the body longs for a return to floating in warm water. It's because of the birthing process. 
Our soul essence spends so much time floating in the cosmic fluids of the universe before being summoned to take a human form that it's necessary for us to return to a place where our true selves, our star selves, the beings composed of gas and dust and elements from the Big Bang, can feel whole again. I should tell you that I'm on quite a bit of natural sleep medication as I record this. Because we had a red-eye flight and I wanted to sleep, but it didn't take right away, so now I'm just taking it in hopes that I won't be too jet-lagged. And also it really takes the edge off, because at some point little worries can consume us. Don't they? And who doesn't want to feel refraxed? Relaxed. The next morning, we awoke refreshed and ready for a day of exploring in the desert. I finished my coffee cake right away, and then Galinda asked if there was any coffee cake left, and I said, did Gary not give you one? She gave me one. And then I realized that that was probably an item to share between lovers, and now I really screwed the pooch on this breakfast plan. I slurped down what coffee was left in my mug and suggested we go grab a proper morning meal when we get up to Joshua Tree. Galinda took her morning supplements and wrapped up her kundalini exercise and shot me a look that said things were not fine. But then she quietly said fine with her mouth, and that was confusing, but not really, because I had eaten the entire coffee cake. I yelled, Super Bloom! a few more times on the road up to Joshua Tree. Not sure I was really reading the room there, but it amused me, so sometimes that's enough. What did improve Galinda's mood was spotting so many adorable shops full of handmade jewelry, native-inspired handicraft, vintage caftan stores, and signs for the world-famous Crochet Museum. I found a spot to park in the dust, and look, it's all dust up there. Everything's covered in dust. The wind is dust, the air is dust, the clouds and the trees, dust. The world-famous Crochet Museum did not disappoint. Although it was there that something strange started to take shape, and my trip suddenly took a turn for the unexplainable, though I wouldn't find out just how unexplainable till hours later. It was a modest structure, and I came upon it before Glinda did, who was busy trying on odd-shaped crystals and learning the entire life story of the woman who made the stuff. And that's just what she does. She can really talk to anyone, and before we know it, we're having people over for dinner and meditation and going on trips with them. I let her do her thing, and I wandered out behind the array of little craft shops. And I want to say there was probably a trailer or a school bus back there, too, but in the center of a sandy courtyard was a small green building that resembled a, well, a rounded-off square, a kind of pod shape, I guess. It was painted bright green with the words, World Famous Crochet Museum, written in script above the window. The main entry was through a small door on the side, and I stepped in to look around. Immediately, the sensation was disorienting and slightly menacing. Crocheted long-necked poodles lined one wall to my left, along with owls, other birds, alligators, a small manger scene with a tiny yarn, Jesus and Mary and the wise men, bunnies and farmers and droopy-legged ballerinas, tiny eyes all around looking directly at me. They hung from the ceiling and filled the shelves along the back wall. A sudden gust of wind blew the door shut and I let out a little, yeep! I turned back around and that's when I heard it, a small voice that seemed to come at me from all directions, tiny but deep as if in the bottom of a well, the sound echoing around me as the words formed in my mind, not spoken so much as felt. We shadow box and double cross, yet need the chase. That sounded familiar, but I couldn't place it. It was kind of a sing-song voice. Though its soft lips never moved, I knew the source of the words had to be the odd-looking creature in front of me. 
In the very center of the back shelf sat a plump little fellow with a boxy cylindrical body made of tight loops of white and blue yarn that had faded in the sun. It had a mushroom-like hat, a tam-o-shanter, made of the same stuff as the body, sloping forward into its face, topped with a pom-pom, a pom-pom that matched the ones attached to the end of its two thick arms. The pom-pom hands seemed to reach out directly at me. Its yellow glass eyes shone forth with two dead black circles as pupils that looked through my entire being, like a bitter wind in January or that dye they use in CAT scans to check that your organs are where they should be. Its mouth, a straight line of orange that betrayed no emotion, but conveyed a deep, deep concern for my well-being. I stumbled backward and tried the doorknob, I must have grabbed it at the same time as Galinda, because it turned quickly and I fell into her on the other side. She could tell I was startled and tried to comfort me by holding my face in her large hands. I told her I was okay, even though she knew I wasn't, but I insisted that she should go in there and check it out, and I'd wait outside. Crochet animals are not really Galinda's thing, so she spent less time in there than I did, and then she suggested we go get something to eat, because I looked like I could use a little boost to the old blood sugar. She showed me a fantastically large crystal and gold ring and a necklace made of elk horn that she had purchased, and we walked across the busy four-lane highway to a diner and ate the best Chinese chicken salad of my life. And now a word about Chinese chicken salad. It's delicious. More places in New York should have it, and if they did, they'd be forever busy, and I hope that happens because I missed this salad more than I knew. Finally, it was time to visit the swap meet. I had been looking forward to this for weeks, and I had a wad of cash in my pocket that I was eager to spend on Western wear and whatever else I could find in a desert swap meet. Flea markets? Oh, flea markets are fine and dandy, but a swap meet? Oh, a meeting of swaps. It just sounds better, doesn't it? More exchanging and mingling and looking through stuff and haggling over a couple of dollars for something you might end up throwing away anyway. I could not wait to get in. And this one did not disappoint. I found cowboy boots, comic books, and a cactus print shirt. I bought belts and bandanas and a wide-brim hat, perfect for working in the communal garden or doing my sun salutations outdoors. I bought some homemade oils and a doohickey for turning eggs. Remember those when people needed to turn their eggs all the time? I promised myself to eat more eggs when I got back to New York and stuffed the thing in my bag with a pair of roller skates, a jar of locally made honey, and a T-shirt that said, Kiss me, I'm a rock hound. So many great finds. My arms were tired from carrying everything, and so I asked Galinda to meet me by the giant metal mule statue, and I was just going to run my precious finds to the car. She had been engaged in a conversation with a man who sold a pack of blankets and California quail feathers, so I knew she'd be a while. Jostling all my bags and goodies, I made my way out to the car and deposited everything in the trunk. I snuck a quick drink from a warm Pellegrino and then went back in. Now, I could not have been gone more than ten minutes, but when I came back, Linda was not there, and the fellow who ran the place was nowhere to be found. I called out to her, I sent a text, but the service was poor, so I headed over to the mule statue where we had agreed to meet. That's someone's dream, by the way, to make large metal statues of ranch animals and sell them at swap meets. you got to admire that. I don't have the time or the welding skills, frankly, uh, but imagine that's your thing. God has blessed you. As I was thinking about things I was good at and ways to stay sharp should I ever retire, I wandered away from the mule statue. I needed to use the little ranch hand's room and relieve myself. I figured Galinda would be there soon, so no big deal. After a quick trip to the bathroom, and let me say this, swap meet bathrooms are the same all over the world. Neglected. I did my business in the stall with no door, wiped my hands dry on my trousers, and I hurried out of there. 
I was on my way back to the metal mule when a curious sign caught my eye. This way to the crystal cavern. Well, now, friends, <laughs> you know I had to see what that was all about, don't you? The Crystal Cavern was located next to an enormous cactus which attracted a gaggle of teenage selfie-takers going for the gram. Teens love the gram. And let's face it, so do I. <laughs> I took a lot of pics exclusive for the gram. I grammed it up out there. I'm only sorry I missed Coachella because I was ready to gram and I was ready to figure out what kind of cultural appropriation works with turtlenecks. Without even trying, I bet I appeared in some of those kids' snaps. I should have asked them to tag me, but in some I wasn't really thinking and didn't suck in my tummy, so probably for the best not to clutter up my uh, search feed with lots of unflattering turtle pics. The Crystal Cavern was a man-made affair. I know construction techniques, and this thing was clearly built on some kind of substructure, maybe two-by-fours, chicken wire, a little plaster here and there, and then it was all covered in a droopy mess of great stuff, that foamy insulation that comes in a can. I've used it to build various dwellings for myself over the years, so I'm familiar with it. Keep the nozzle clean. That's my advice. Anyway, this cavern, such as it was, had little porthole windows that you could look into, and inside were uh, ponds with live goldfish swimming in circles. Multicolored aquarium stones were strewn everywhere, along with tiny plastic gems and miniature plants, and some piping that I assume brought in fresh air to the enclosure. The windows were a little foggy from the heat of fish breath and condensation from the tiny pools. There were a couple of locked doors, which I suppose were used to replenish the fish and the fish supplies, or make alterations to the tiny landscape that they called home. The rest of the structure was painted in multiple shades of green, with red and blue and green LED lights embedded in the walls and ceiling, which was low enough that one felt they had to crouch slightly to move through the space. Because it was there, I tried a doorknob on the rear wall. Now, ordinarily, I'm a curious fellow, but not that curious. And had that door been locked, I would have thought nothing of it. But the knob turned easily, and the small door opened. The doorway was low, but there uh, seemed to be a real bright light on the other side of the door. I squinted as I stepped through, and then nothing. Well, something. I mean, it felt like falling. It felt like coming apart and being reassembled, stitched together with threads made of energy. I saw colors melting into one another, large goldfish circling in and out of focus. Two coyotes ran toward me, then turned into crows. I tried to focus my eyes on a small dot, but that dot got larger and larger and larger until it surrounded me, and I was momentarily inside a geode made of flesh. Its crystal-lined walls were soft to the touch, pliable and comforting. And then I felt a heavy weight meet my side, and everything went dark. I came to a little while later. I reached for my glasses, which were not on my face. Oh, dear, I thought, as I pawed around in the dust. Why was my bed so dusty? My hand found my glasses, and I fumbled as I put them on my face. I felt hot and a little dizzy. I looked up, and I was not in a room at all, uh, for all I could see was a quickly darkening sky. I remembered the crystal cavern and the door that opened. Lying on the ground, I looked to my left as a small brown lizard darted under a bramble of yellow flowers and thick thorns. A crow cried out from atop a misshapen blooming arm of a Joshua tree, a few of which poked up among the large stone formations and low-lying brush. Oh, goddess, I thought, what has happened? That artificial crystal cavern must have contained a powerful vortex, a vortex powered by primal earth energy. 
I had been wrenched from the middle of that swap meet to this place, wherever this was, whenever this was. I was suddenly very worried that it was a black hole, which we now know exists for sure because we saw a blurry picture of it on the Internet. To me, it looked more like an aura photo, and whoa, that black hole's aura says it's got a lot going on, and it should probably just focus on itself for a little bit. Did I slip through realities? That slippage I was feeling a few episodes ago, had I finally managed to enter another reality where I might be a father and some kind of arts administrator? I said a tiny prayer to Ganesh and hoped I was still in the right reality where I belonged. I stood up, shaking, trying to get my bearings. The sun was going down quickly, and the tiniest sliver of a moon appeared in the sky to the east. The crow went silent, which was good, because it was starting to really annoy me. I know they're smart, but ugh, <laughs> go find a shiny button or something. I started walking toward a patch of light in the distance. Perhaps someone was living out there, some kind of off-the-grid fella who could offer me an ATV ride back to town. I have a natural way with drifters. We get each other. We both long for the solitude of drifter life. Going into the general store for two unrelated items, like a pack of cigarettes and a can of soup, or a container of motor oil and a pack of raisins. You know, drifter stuff. I bet this fellow and I would get along great. Although it could just as easily be a woman in a soiled tank top eating a turnip with a dull knife as Wheel of Fortune blares in the background. Well, if getting home means briefly becoming a brother-husband in a tribe of polyamorous desert folk, so be it. It wouldn't be the first time. I set out by following a path that looked like a dry creek bed and wound its way past some large stones. My turtleneck got snagged on a thorn, and as I turned to inspect the damage, something caught my eye. Two large rabbit ears shot straight up behind a cactus that looked like it was covered in toothpicks. The ears were remarkable not only for their size, but because they were glowing a ghostly green. I wrestled my turtle free of the thorn and took a step toward the bunny ears. And just then the strange beast started off behind a rock. I followed. Trailing this glowing rabbit, I thought of the crochet museum and a little yarn bunny that was on the shelf next to a tiny yarn Jesus. It was green, too, and its eyes were pink. It had a square body as if its original purpose was a Kleenex koozie, one to be kept on the back of the toilet to hide an unsightly Kleenex box. And I have to say, the patterns on those boxes are atrocious. Whose house are they for? A little bit Sarasota Beach House, a little bit Hotel Carpet in Milwaukee. Why not just be off-white or gray? I'm fine with bland-looking Kleenex boxes. I'm just going to put a yarn animal on it anyway. Wait, did I warg into a doll at the world-famous crochet museum? Is there a little version of me sitting dead-eyed on a shelf next to other critters and religious icons? Is there just polyester stuffing where my sloshy bit should be? Will the camera pull out and out and out, and then the door shuts and cut to a drone shot that looks out over the desert, then into the sky, and that's the end of me? Is some twilight zone business and the entire world has been made of old yarn this whole time? No. I can feel the wind. I can taste the dirt. It tastes like old boots. I'm here, in this moment. This is real, and I have to get back. So I follow the jackrabbit. It worked for Alice. The rabbit's glowing body illuminates a little pathway through the rocks. I'm running. It's running. I'm not a strong runner. So I stop, and I catch my breath, and now I've lost the trail. I climb up a large rock to see if I can get a lay of the land. The stone is crumbling, and I'm real nervous I'm going to step on a rattlesnake or put my hand on a scorpion. That's my biggest fear, other than dying during sex as an old person. On the top of the formation, I can't see much. It's total darkness out there. Just the shadow forms of Joshua trees against the deepening purple of the sky. I see the jackrabbit again, jumping in tiny, fast arcs away from me and towards what looks like 
a road. And coming up that road, my goodness, headlights. Headlights of a car driving cautiously over a rutted dirt road. I call out and start to run to meet them on the road. The two gals in the car could not have been nicer. They were in town for the diner, named after Dinah Shore, who I am sure would be pretty excited to know that starting a ladies' golf tournament in Palm Springs has evolved into what is affectionately known in some circles as lesbian spring break. I had read about it before we made the trip, and I was excited that the diner was happening, because everyone should have a chance to sip tropical drinks and go nuts in the desert while wearing flattering yet functional golf attire. Cece and Epaulette were so kind, and we had great fun driving back down into town. They were on their way to a big outdoor party in Palm Springs and offered to take me with them, where I figured I could at least find a payphone and get word to Galinda that I was okay and maybe could use some water. Oh, and wait till she heard about tearing my favorite travel turtleneck. The party took place on the grounds of a sprawling resort that resembled a Spanish castle. Flamingos bathed near a fountain whose main feature was a cement angel spraying water from her privates. I meant to get the name of their fountain designer, because wouldn't that be something? Not sure the water in the Guanas would be thin enough for a proper spray, but we could have our mechanic look at it. We got out of the car at the valet, and I thanked Cece and Epaulette for the ride and the company, and for saving me. I hugged each of them goodbye after making sure it was okay to do so. Consent matters, even when you've just been rescued. I gave them each a blessing with my owl necklace. I promised to follow them both on Insta, and made my way out of the resort's main gates and into the warm desert night air. Luckily, Palm Springs is not an enormous place. I could see where the planes were landing and figured that must be the airport. A pretty good guess, as it turns out. And just outside the airport, I could hear the sweet, sweet sound of a jazz flute. It was a cover of Sade's Smooth Operator. And there's never been a smoother operator than whoever was playing that tune on the jazz flute. I tell you that, what a sound. I made my way to the JetBlue gates and nearly collapsed at the check-in desk. Your friendly folks there asked if I was okay, and I started to tell them all about the Crochet Museum and the Jackrabbit, and just then I felt a familiar large hand on my back. It was Galinda. She wrapped me up in her strong arms and many layers of linen as we embraced. Happy to be reunited, I started to think about that weird yarn boy and his pom-pom hands and that voice. Were those lyrics? Was the chase something larger? Whatever it was, I was happy to be back with Galinda, who informed me that I had lost an entire day out there in the desert. And that's why she was here at the airport now. She thought I'd just gotten mad or distracted by a person in need of some cosmic guidance, so she wasn't worried. She had meditated and saw that I wasn't dead, just peacefully sleeping somewhere. She said she also read about a problem in Joshua Tree of old military chemicals leaking into the landscape. Apparently wildlife were getting too near the stuff and it gave them a radioactive glow at night. But the military couldn't go and clean up the stuff because it was partially on tribal lands and the tribes wouldn't let the military back in. I nearly cried at such a simple explanation. I told her it still must have been a terrestrial wormhole or something that got me there. Glenda and I laughed because you could have also been kidnappers who hit me on the head with a mallet because my wallet was missing and my phone was gone. All in all, a pretty fun and memorable trip to a magical land they call Yashua Tree. Well, there you have it. See the world, friends. Do some mystical traveling and see what happens. My thanks to everyone who assisted me in my return to the living. May Gaia's blessings rain down upon you like so many hot glass orbs that killed the dinosaurs all at once. That's what they say. 
all at once. Personalized reading this week goes out to Uli Meadows of Fort Brandish, Missouri. Keep the nozzle clean. That's my advice. And lucky numbers this week are all of them. I'm so grateful to be alive. All numbers are lucky. And that'll do it for this hour of regrets and revelations. We come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. I'm Dale Seaver, and remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is independently produced by James Bewley. He's gotten used to answering to the name Dale when people see him. Season 11 podcast icon by Candace Brorsma. Season 11 podcast theme by Zach Gabbard. Music heard throughout the show by the talented roster at Howler Hills Farm in Ohio. Season 11 poster artwork contributed by illustrators Catherine Lamb, Maria Wen, Scott Balmer, Ronald Horn Industries, and Laurent Rybick. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on some other fine platform, zip over there and leave us a couple of stars. Uh, the show is weekly with live events every other month at the Slipper Room in Manhattan on the Lower East Side. Thank you for listening and for your kind support. Now with Gaia's blessings, let's seal the portal. <laughs>